Amen. Good morning, family. Morning, church. How are you doing? Are you good? Isn't God good? And all the time? Hallelujah. Can we pray? Can we pray this morning? Father, we thank you for times in your presence. We thank you for the refreshing that comes from your presence. And we exclaim together with the psalmist that in your presence there's fullness of joy. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you anoint me with the anointing that comes from the Holy Spirit to bring clarity from your word and to share your word with faith and boldness and anointing. And I pray, Lord, that your word will be met with faith. For faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. And so I pray, Lord, you'll just anoint our ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us this morning in the name of Jesus. And everybody says, Amen, amen and Amen. It's so good to be in God's presence once again. Uh, we've had a blessed week uh, just out there supporting uh, Shapers Church in Strader Park in Ramburg uh, with a good friend of mine, Pastor Israel Piri, and we got to hear um, we got to hear the word of the Lord. And so uh, we're looking forward to having him on the 29th of April, uh, where he'll just be uh, guiding us and uh, instructing us in the art and mechanics of expository preaching. If you were here at our conference, uh, you remember the Saturday session where he ministered from the book of Esther. And we were so blessed uh, by the word of the Lord. And um, I said to myself, no, uh, we must connect this year and have him equip some of our leaders. Amen. So it was just 200 rand, a small price to pay, a small investment to make. Uh, sell chips, sell sweets, sell whatever you can. Uh, don't miss out. Amen. Has anybody had a birthday or anniversary or anything this week? Laron. Hey, I knew something was missing from the service. <laughs> Lerone, Lerone, if my calculations are right, uh, it's a 39, 38. You, you, you're still uh, wet behind the ears, eh? <laughs> and next year, I clock in at the fourth floor. I think I, I join uh, the fourth floor. I think uh, Pastor Clinton is getting ready to leave the fourth floor. <laughs> I always wondered what my life would be like at 40. Uh, but there's good news, they say, life begins at 40. I know Moses uh, started doing uh, miracles after 80, so there's a lot in store, amen. amen. Can you turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2? We are still in the epistle of James. And I trust you've been reading and meditating on, on the word of God. James chapter 2, we'll be reading from 14 to 26. I wish I could read the entire chapter for you. When you're there, please give me an amen. amen. <laughs> and the title of uh, our message this morning is Faith in Action. Last week, we shared on faith under pressure this week. And this morning, we'll share on faith in action. James chapter 2 verse 14 reads as follows, For what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
or someone will say you have faith and I have works show me your, your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works you believe that there is one God you do well even demons believe and tremble but do you want to know oh foolish man that faith without works is dead was it not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar do you not see that faith working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect and does not the scripture be fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only likewise was not Rahab the harlot a prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way for as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without works is dead also amen just a quick review and recap of last week what good of a teacher would i be to not you know recap our previous lesson and so last week we discussed how important it is to understand the dealings of god in your life and we look at making a distinction between what is a temptation and what is a trial and there is a difference there are also times and distinctions between the trials and tests that God puts us through and the discipline he enforces in our lives. So there is a difference at times when God tests you and when God disciplines you. And often he tests you to bring out patience and maturity. And oftentimes he disciplines us to, to teach us faithfulness and obedience for our disobedience. We also established that the reason behind James writing his essay type epistle to the church was to encourage the church that was going through trials and testing and persecution. We also looked at which James wrote this particular epistle. And in light of James being the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, this threw a different light on his opening statements and address to the church. We also looked at what it means, truly means to be a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We went on to proceed by exploring the opening remarks of James to the church, which was a difficult command to obey. He told the church, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We also saw that God never gives us a command to obey unless he gives us the power to fulfill it and the grace to obey. And I reminded you last week that God never promised us a life without challenges and a life without difficulty and a life without trial. So we cannot afford to have or be found with a faith or theology that is not prepared to face the hard times. Yeah. Yes. Or else our hearts would fail every time there was a challenge, every time the stages of load shedding would go up. Every time the interest rates would, 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 would hike, our hearts would fail us. Life can be hard, but God is good. God allows trials with the agenda of producing patience, and we explored how patience is not a passive term. Patience comes from the Greek term hupomeno, which means to remain under a heavy load to have the capacity and strength to endure a heavy 
load and in context of James patience speaks of being able to endure trials and testing being able to persevere towards a goal and being able to wait expectantly for a promise to be fulfilled and we concluded that God is more invested in your character than your comfort he is more interested in the production of your character than in the provision of your comfort. In other words, he'd rather have you holy than happy. Amen. Did you hear me this morning, church? He'd rather have you holy than happy. And the goal of the New Testament and the New Covenant is not your happiness. It's your holiness. For he said, be ye holy as I am holy for without holiness no man or woman will see the kingdom of God for he is a thrice holy God amen holy 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 is the Lord God almighty and so when we approach any epistle or book of the New Testament we must recognize audience relevance we must be able to identify who is the intended and immediate and original audience that the author is writing to. Who is he addressing? What circumstances do they find themselves in? And so we have to reconstruct the historical setting and reconstruct the cultural setting. And last week I mentioned that there is a difference between the original audience and the contemporary audience we are the contemporary audience the bible was not written to us it was written for us and the goal of bible interpretation and the goal and at the heart of every bible study should be this what was the original intent and purpose in the mind of the author when he was penning down his letter and if we can establish what was the original intent of the author we can establish what was in the mind of God because a lot is lost in translation a lot is lost through the corridors of time and often when we approach the Bible when we approach scripture we approach scripture with our own presuppositions, with our own preconceived ideas. In other words, when we come to the scriptures, we often read into it and seldom read out of it. And so when scholars and theologians speak of exegesis, the term exegesis means literally to draw out, to read out of the scriptures. And so often when we hear the terms faith and we stumble upon the words love, we'll often take our own experience and understanding of what faith is and what love is and apply it to the scriptures and because we've come out of the world of faith movement when we hear faith we associate faith with what we can get from god because that's the only that's the only understanding we've developed around faith and so what we do when we come to passages like Hebrews chapter 11 or when we come to passages that revolve around, around the term faith we often read into it and assume that faith is used to get something out of God to get my breakthrough, to get my miracle but we must learn that at the heart of true Bible study and interpretation we must be able to read out of the scripture so let the, the Bible say what the Bible is saying and so James pens his letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. <laughs> the important thing to note about this and the reason why many scholars were thrown off by the introduction of his letters because the 12 tribes no longer existed in their geographical locations and the people of Israel no longer gathered in their fashion and nobody generally knew which tribe they were from anymore because of the of the captivity the Babylonian captivity and so when Rome took over they kind of lost a sense of of their tribal allocation and, and, and tribal uh, uh, identity and so when James uses this phrase we mentioned last week 
that is using this way, th th this, this phrase figuratively to describe the church that has now been scattered outside of Palestine. And the Latin term or the technical term for this word where the Jews were dispersed, were dispersed is the term diaspora, which you may be familiar with. So Peter, in, first, in his first letter to the Gentiles and to the church, he makes a similar address. He says in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, God's elect, uh, to the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia, and Asia, and he goes on and on and on. He is speaking and addressing the church, and he uses the, a similar language. One thing that will do us good this morning is also to try and understand the time in which James wrote. And according to Josephus, Josephus tells us that James was martyred in around 62 AD during the reign of the high priest of Ananias. And traditional scholars would then date the letter of James during the time of 40 AD and 50 AD. So they traditionally allocate the writing of the letter of James to this time period, which would then lead us to associate James's letter around the time of Acts chapter 11. The Bible says in Acts chapter 11, now those who had been scattered by persecution that broke out when Stephen was stoned traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch spreading the word of God amongst the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went from Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also telling them about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was during this time when Stephen was stoned and the church was under persecution in Jerusalem that the church scattered abroad. And so it would make sense that James is writing to this group of believers who have scattered. And it's not difficult when reading through James to understand that the church is dealing with a number of issues. The church is dealing with a number of prevailing social issues and conflict and spiritual challenges. The first thing we see is that the early church that was scattered was met with fire, the fiery trials of persecution. They were met with a scourge of poverty. And if you read Acts chapter 11, the Bible says that a prophet by the name of Agabus prophesied that there was a famine coming. And the Bible reads as follows in verse 28 and 29. It says, During this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit of God predicted that there would be a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of, of Claudius. The disciples as each one of them was able to do, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters that were living in Judea. And so the early church and the early world during this time when James is writing is dealing with poverty. They're dealing with persecution. And not only did they have to deal with the trials that were external, with the trials that were without, but they had to deal with the conflict within. And it wasn't the conflict that was outside of the church that concerned James. It was the conflict that was within. And so he writes and addresses a few issues that the church had allowed into their fellowship. The first thing he addresses is the issue of partiality. And so he writes in chapter 2, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. 
For if there is someone who comes into your assembly, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should come another man who is poor with filthy rags, and you pay no attention to him, but attention to the one who has fine clothes, and you say to him, come here and sit in the good place. Sit at my footstool, stand here. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and made yourself a judge with evil thoughts? He also addresses the issues of strife and quarreling that was found in the church. He says in chapter 4, brethren, what causes the fights and the quarreling among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle inside of you? In other words, he's saying, what, what's causing all this bickering? Can we locate the source? And the source has actually got to do with your own heart and your own desires. You, de you desire and do not have, and so you kill. You covet and you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and fight you do not have because you do not ask God when you ask you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend on what you may get on your pleasure then he addresses them and rebukes them sharply and he says you are adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And the list of issues are endless. And one of the issues he had to address was the issue of the tongue. He says, a little member that sets a whole world on fire because men don't know how to bridle their tongues. And he deals with the subject of wrath and anger. He deals with the subject of the wealthy that must share amongst those who are poor. And he deals with a number of issues. But when, you, when you're done reading through the letter of James, you, you kind of sense and, and see an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is interesting because there, are, there is a striking parallel between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. And many scholars have noted this. And it's probably not strange because James was the younger brother of Jesus. And even though he wasn't a believer, he may have sat under the teachings of Jesus. And years later remembered the teachings of Jesus. And then pens his letter. And it just goes to show that, you know, even, even if someone's not committed to God, you know? Just them coming to church and hearing the word of God, you know, still has its, yes. has its effect on their lives. That later when they come to Christ and become believers, they can reflect back on what God has said. Yes. Yeah. So even if you're struggling in your sin and you, and you backslidden, don't stop coming to church. Oh, Keep yeah. on coming. And so the Sermon on the Mount is found between Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 7. Jesus deals with a number of comprehensive teachings. He starts off with the Beatitudes, which you are all familiar with. And the Bible says in Matthew 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds that Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to open his mouth and he began to teach. And saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And he goes on from chapter 5 to chapter 7, and he concludes chapter 7 with the illustration of the wise and foolish men who build their houses during a storm. And he says, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon the rock. 
We see the parallel between Matthew and James in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 to 11. Jesus taught and said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who revile, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And James in chapter 1, verse 2, says a little bit differently. He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you are met with various trials. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 to 11, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and he who knocks will have the door open to him. Which one of you, if he has a son, and the son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he, has a, he asks for a fish, will the father give him a serpent? Or if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And James wanted and verse 17 says if any one of you lacks wisdom let him ask God who gives generously and liberally to all without reproach and in verse 17 he says every good and perfect gift comes from above from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning Matthew 5 verse 3 to 7 Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. James put it this way in chapter 2. He says, Listen, my beloved brethren. It's like Dean or Madhidre is addressing us here. Listen, my beloveds. Has not God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Matthew 5 verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James chapter 2 verse 13, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. Matthew 7 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them. He will be likened unto a wise man who built his house upon the rock. James chapter 1 verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Now let's follow James' flow of thoughts. There are a number of, of truths that James uses to kind of frame his thoughts and, and frame his letter to the church. And the first truth I want us to look at is the truth of patience because in verse 3 of chapter 1 he tells us that the purpose of the testing of your faith is to produce patience and we know patience is persevering as being able to to it's, it's having the capacity to endure a heavy load and then in chapter 5 verses 7 to 8 James then frames his letter with this idea of patience and he says therefore brethren be patient until the coming of the Lord see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain you also be patient and persevering establishing your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand he is telling us that we need to be patient we need to be persevering and you know, I had a, a pastor friend of mine in the week complain to me he says oh, man I think since COVID we've we just we're producing soft Christians man I'm like brother what's wrong <laughs> the kind of believers we're seeing today don't know how to take a licking at the first sign of trouble, they quit. At the first sign of offense, they give up God. As though you come to church for people. 
when the company retrenches and when you've lost your job you've lost your faith you've lost all hope you're in despair when nothing goes your way you you are devastated and pastor counsel me and pastor I don't know how I'm gonna make it through it if the early church saw you sulking they would love you out of the streets because they went through such persecution that would make our show here look like a circus he broke up with you I don't know how I'm gonna live I can't live without her your marriage failed I don't know how she was my everything gotta learn how to take a licking and keep on ticking you be like that post stamp you know that post stamp you lick and you just stick that stamp on the envelope and let in and it will arrive at its point of destination but we have a whole bunch of believers that don't know how to stick they don't know how to stick their faith to the word of God they don't know how to persevere under trial that's what the Bible says a righteous man will fall seven times but rise again and again and again can we expel of these softies <laughs> you know everybody getting offended everybody getting triggered if, we, if there was a line of people that were offended I'll be the first to join because nobody gets offended like the pastor trust me nobody gets offended like the pastor Bible says if your faith fails in times of adversity you are weak you are weak so my challenge to you is strengthen the knees and strengthen the hands and learn how to toughen your heart and learn how to guard your heart and learn how to toughen your hide develop some rhino skin would you can we get some rhino skin Christians in this day and age oh but the pastor didn't greet me I'm leaving the church one of the other truths that James highlights for us is found in chapter 1 verse 7 to 18 he says every good and perfect gift comes from above comes from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning of his own will he brought us out and brought us forth by the word of truth he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures so the reason why we are seated here because and, and the reason why we have a relationship with God and we came to Christ is because his word brought us forth he sent his word and the gospel was preached and when the gospel was preached we responded in faith and repentance and so James is saying we were brought forth by the word of truth and then in chapter 1 verse 21 he says now therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive the implanted word of God with meekness what's able to save your souls now that the word has brought you forth learn to receive that same word that was implanted in you but receive it with meekness and then finally he instructs us in chapter 1 22 to 25 he says be not only hearers of this word but be doers also this is the part to true wisdom because if you are a hearer and not a doer you are deceiving yourself for if anyone here is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was and the phrase natural face when James says he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror is a poor rendering of the translation 
Because what he's really saying in the Greek is when he observes the face of his birth in a mirror. In other words, when you observe the word of God, when you hear the word of God, when you study the word of God, when the word of God is proclaimed to you, the word of God will present to you the state of your condition. The true state of your nature. He observes himself and he immediately forgets. It's not that he is a, a hasteful individual that doesn't have time to listen to the word. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not comparing a, an attentive listener with, with someone who doesn't listen carefully. No, what he's saying is you are likened unto the man who hears and doesn't do. In other words, it's a comparison between someone who may even be listening carefully and attentively and with detail, hears the word and goes out and carries on like he didn't hear in the first place. That's the comparison being made. And James says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's a juxtaposition, a law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in whatever he does. If you're looking for the blessing of God, you're not going to profess it and possess it. You're not going to name it and claim it. You're not going to speak all these confessions and decrees over your life. No, that's not going to work. You've got to do the work. You've got to do the work. You've got to obey the word of the Lord. That's where the blessing is contained. And so often, there is a gap between what we say and what we do. And James is saying, bridge that gap. Close the gap. Like the Italian proverb says, between what someone says and what someone does, many pairs of shoes are worn out. So James also makes an appeal for wisdom. He tells us in chapter 1 verse 5, now that you've been faced with these trials, he says, consider poor joy, but you're going to need wisdom to interpret the trials and dealings of God in your life and trouble in your life. And so he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then in chapter 3, verse 13 to 17, he says, who is wise and understanding amongst you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and you are self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. For this wisdom does not descend from heaven, does not ascend, uh, descend from above, but this is earthly and sensual and demonic wisdom. For where there is envy and self-seeking, Confusion and every evil thing exists there. But the wisdom that is from above is pure and peaceable and gentle and willing to yield and full of mercy and full of good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. He is, he is telling us about two kinds of wisdom here. In chapter 1 verse 5, he's telling us about a wisdom that is reflective the kind of wisdom that you will find represented in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Job. It's the kind of wisdom that tries to discover the meaning behind trials, the meaning behind sufferings, the meaning behind God's purpose of all of this. This is reflective wisdom. It's more philosophical. It's more a search for insight and knowledge of the truth. And then in chapter 3 that we just read, this speaks more to a practical kind of wisdom. This is the kind of wisdom that is prominent in the book of Proverbs. It's a kind of wisdom that is more hands-on, it's more in the field, it's more applied in day-to-day -day living. When we ask for wisdom, we must bear this in mind, that wisdom is not just conceptual, it's not just reflective. It must be translated 
in day-to-day -day practical living. Now let's get into our subject this morning. Just as James framed his, his letter to the church with these truths and his many truths, he also wanted us to understand what faith is. And so in chapter 1 verse 3, he speaks of a faith that is tested. That the testing of our faith produces patience. In chapter 1 verse 6, he says, ask in faith. He says, your faith will be tested and you must ask and pray in faith. And then in chapter 2 verse 1, he speaks of a kind of faith that does not hold on to partiality and favoritism kind of faith that doesn't that is not discriminative and doesn't ex, doesn't exhibit any racism or, or or favoritism or partiality and then in chapter 2 verse 5 he goes on and says God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom and we see Paul mentioned this in Corinthians as well where he says bread are not many wise and intellectual and rich amongst you have come into the kingdom because it seems that the poor have more of an inclination towards the gospel if I mean if rich people easily accepted the gospel this church will be well, in fact we wouldn't even be sitting in this church yeah. we'll be sitting in our own land yeah. you know in a mega church and there's two three bass guitars on stage and Dean has some help and everybody's financed and, and happy and Jesus made this illustration and said it's hard for a rich man to come into the kingdom. It's hard. It's like a camel going to pass into the eye of a needle. Because man's tendency is that when we have enough and when we have more than enough to spare, we become self-dependent and we forget to become God-dependent. And that's why uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes oftentimes, he says, better to be in the house of mourning in the house of rejoicing because when it's a good time yeah. how forgetful are we yeah. but when the going gets tough and you have no way to turn your only option is to look up all this time you were looking within but now God says I'm going to allow some tough times to get to you just to turn your attention to me and so in chapter 5, he speaks about the prayer of faith that will save the sick. But in chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, which we just read, which is our text, James draws all these concepts of faith together, ties them all together. And he explains that there must be no incoherence between your faith and your works. There must be no discrepancy between what you believe and what you do. What most of us may realize is that when we come to this passage of scripture, there, there is a theological point of tension here. In the teaching of James, because Paul told us that we are justified by faith alone. And not of works, least any man boasts. But we've been saved by faith not by grace through faith not of works that any man should boast and in romans 3 verse 28 he says therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law in ephesians chapter 2 8 and 9 paul goes on to say for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith not of yourselves it is the gift of god not by works least any one of you should boast in Galatians 2 verse 16, Paul again says, Knowing that a man is not justified by his works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works, not by the works of the law or by flesh, shall we ever be justified. And here James comes along and says, A person is not justified by faith alone. Faith without works is dead. 
So scholars have suggested there is a contradiction between what Paul is saying and what James is saying. Even the great reformer Martin Luther disliked the book of James. He said it should not be included in the canon. Because this was the reformer who nailed his 95 thesis on the church door of Wittenberg and said that we are justified by faith and not by the works that the Catholic Church has prescribed to us. So many have believed that there is a contradiction between what Paul is saying and what James is saying. But I'd like to argue for the fact that they are just dealing with each side of the coin. It's one coin here, but two sides. Firstly, James is not addressing the same faith. He's not speaking about the faith that justifies, that Paul is speaking about. Note what he says in chapter 2 and verse 14. James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? What does it profit if someone says they have faith and Clark has stated in a quote that James is addressing the profession of someone who claims to have faith and not actually justifying faith unquote James is addressing a pseudo kind of faith Something posing as faith. Someone who says they have faith and don't have the money to back it. And James says, can this kind of faith save this man? James is not saying that faith doesn't save. That faith alone doesn't save. What he is saying is, the faith that is simply professed, that's all talk and show, this pseudo kind of faith is not faith and cannot save. And so James goes on to compare this kind of faith to the faith of demons. He says, you believe there's a God? It's fine, all well and good, but demons believe there's a God and they tremble in other words demons possess the knowledge you possess and they have in fact they go a step further than you they have an emotional response to that belief because they tremble this is the kind of faith that Jesus warned us about in the Pharisees he cursed a fig tree once to illustrate this kind of faith to all of Israel. He gets up to the fig tree and the fig tree has its leaves perched. And if you understand how fig trees work, if their leaves are showing, it's an indication that there's fruit, there's figs to be, to be picked from. And so Jesus gets to this fig tree and there's no figs. This fig tree created the expectation of fruit. But when he gets to the fig tree he's misled and so the, the leaves indicated that there was fruit but when Jesus got to the fig tree there was no fruit and what he's saying is the Pharisees have this kind of faith they have the leaves of profession but they lack the fruit of possession they don't walk the talk they like to be seen and like to look religious and like to wear the collars and, and like to be recognized and like the attention and like the seat of Moses. But when the rubber meets the road, they are wanting in faith. James is also addressing a different kind of work. Paul was referring to the works of the law. 
in trying to achieve salvation. James is dealing with the works that are produced from faith. And so at the heart of this passage lies a deep concern that James has for the church. He's deeply concerned about their attitude towards the faith. That their faith has been reduced to talk only. To a verbal doctrinal confession. And that's all it is. It's, only, it's been reduced to exist only on their lips. And so his concern is clearly expressed in three times in verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. Then in verse 20 he says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He repeats himself again. Then in verse 26 he repeats himself again with a final a pronouncement of judgment he says for as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without works is dead he just kept on saying it's dead it's dead it's dead he's emphatic about this and he wants it to stick and he wants them to sense his concern so he takes up this case with the church and he goes as far as to introduce an imaginary opponent Verse 14, he says, if someone says to him, introduces an opponent, that he has faith but without works. And so he deals straight on in this conflict with this opponent. And he says, you say you have faith without works. I say I have faith in the works. I come with the evidence. Here's my evidence. Where's your evidence? And finally, he rebukes this foolish man in a formal rant and he says but what do you want to know oh foolish man that faith without works is dead can this faith save you it's a rhetorical question and the answer is no this faith cannot save you both James and Paul go together like two sides of the same coin they don't actually conflict with each other they complement each other. Both teach us something important about faith. James talks about the external results of faith. Paul speaking about the internal impact of faith. Paul says we are saved by faith. James says this is what saving faith looks like. Paul is saying we are not saved by good works. James is saying we are saved for good works. And Paul stood in agreement with him in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. He said, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in it. Titus 3 uh, verse 8, Titus says, this is a faithful saying. Well, Paul says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want to affirm to you that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. Now I'll ask you the question this morning, if you were tried as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Where is the evidence of our faith? And in closing, I want to look at how James uses faith in context. First in chapter 1 verse 26 he says, If anyone amongst you is religious, and does not bridle his tongue he deceives his own heart and this one's religion is useless yeah. and then he goes on to say pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world he says if anyone thinks they they are religious they should show it in how they address the most disadvantaged of the community which is the widows and the orphans and then in chapter 2 verse 1 to 9 he goes on and he addresses the issue of partiality he says, he says my brethren do not hold faith the faith of our Lord Jesus the Lord of glory with partiality and then when we skip down to verse 5 he says listen my brethren has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith to be the heirs of the kingdom which was promised to those who love him but you have dishonored the poor man do not the rich 
amongst you in your midst drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself and you will do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Then if you look at our passage in chapter 2, James is talking about faith, but he uses an illustration. And you'll see this illustration in verse 15. But let's read from verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can this faith save him? Then he uses the example. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and any one of you tell him, go in peace. God bless you. God will make a way. You know, God will make a way. And you have the means. He uses that example. And then, interestingly enough, to enforce his argument about faith being accompanied with works, he speaks of Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was known as the father of the Jews. Rahab is known as a Gentile harlot. Someone that the Jews would not have welcomed into their, into their circles. And so Genesis 18 verse 1 to 8. The interesting thing about when we read about Abraham in this passage is that Abraham is known to have shown hospitality to three strangers. And he did not know that he was actually showing hospitality to the Lord himself in a theophany. Then when we read about Rahab in chapter 11 of Hebrews and verse 36, the Bible says, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she, was, she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And James uses these two examples of people who showed hospitality and kindness to those who were in need. And so what is the Bible trying to teach us about faith is that faith must be expressed in kindness yeah. that faith works by love yeah. that you can have all the beliefs in the world you can be theologically precise doctrinally sound but if you don't know how to treat your neighbor you have a faith that is dead a faith that cannot save a pseudo faith because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By it, the elders obtained a good report. The, the, the fact that you have faith means that you have the evidence. What are the marks of true faith? Saving faith affectionately embraces its community. Saving faith reaches out to those in need. Saving faith works on the hearts of believers. Saving faith embraces the terms and the truth of the gospel. It's not indifferent to its truths. It works by love. It works by responding to the Word of God and responding to those who are in need. And you'll see this in four or five of Paul's epistles that he wrote. You'll see this in the epistles that James, that James not much James, Peter wrote, where he would all, where they would always open up and address the church like this. I've heard of your faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards the saints. Faith is not just expressed in the accomplishing of mighty works. Faith can be seen in how we treat each other. How we treat God's perfect gifts. Can this kind of faith save? This is the kind of fruit that our faith must possess. And that's why Jesus said by this will men know that you are my followers, that you have love one for another. Because how can you love and, and say you have faith in the God you don't see? 
and yet you don't know how to treat your brother whom you see and God is saying if you say and profess you right here show it there show it there why are there quarrels amongst you why are there fights among you why are you showing partiality why, why is your tongue becoming an instrument of harm why those who are rich are so careless and indifferent to those who are in need remember poverty and persecution have broken out in the church and James is saying this is not right treat your neighbor right make right first with your brother before you come present your gift to me amen can we stand Let's pray. Heavenly Father.